1: Well, hello and welcome to another nose, but not just any nose, a very special nose tonight on a very special nose. So uh, one of the movies from 2019, which you might have missed, is called Atlantics or Atlantique. Uh, it uh, actually won second prizes. It's complicated at Cannes. But if you win the Grand Prix, which sounds pretty good, I think that's actually second place. Uh, but that's still pretty good, considering the fact that the filmmaker is, I think, making her first uh, film ever. And also that she was the first uh, black director, black woman director ever to be uh, featured at Cannes. Uh, so it is a Senegalese Ghost story, love story, uh, economic story. We'll tell you all about it in the second segment of today's show. We'll also talk about what you can tell about another person from that person's bookcases. Or, or maybe what you can't tell about them. Uh, but we're going to begin by talking uncustomarily uh, about the world of sports, except that the NBA these days is no longer, I think, exclusively simply a sport where you watch to see who wins and loses and who performs well. Increasingly, the NBA is kind of the epicenter or is kind of the uh, uh, thought leader about a whole bunch of different topics. They seem to have figured out the pandemic better than just about anybody, uh, but that's not really why we're talking about them today. You probably know that uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, they struggled with the whole question, they being the players struggled with the whole question of whether to even continue playing their season uh, after what had happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, which was of course piled on top of everything else that has happened. So yes, today we are going to talk on the nose about the rather Unique position that the NBA now occupies. Uh, And we're going to do that with Jim Chapdelaine, who I happen to know is an NBA fan, uh, Emmy-winning musician, producer, composer, recording engineer, and patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Tanisha Dugan, producing associate at TheaterWorks, She's joining us via the miracle of Skype, uh, and just plain old me. So, um, I'm going to have Jim get us going, because I think really Jim was one of the people kind of urging us to to take that turn. Uh, See, now it just seems like Jim is not as excited about the uh, NBA I, I caught my
2: finger in a door. <laughs> okay. I was trying to dunk, and I, <laughs> I got hooked up on the rim. So, I so I
1: I mean, I guess my question is. I have so many different questions, but my question is. You know, is the, did the thing that happened this week when it appeared as though they might, in fact, just suspend the entire NBA playoffs, the rest of the playoffs. Uh, they've since reconsidered that. Uh, but uh, but it was obviously a quite a flexing of, of player muscle uh, around this. Uh, is this one of these things that really does kind of change the dy- dynamic forever?
2: I mean, you, you could say that that it was I, it, it could have easily been a one off. Um, the NBA has done this before players have. Bill Russell was was very outspoken in the 60s and, and certainly affected change. But this felt different because within 24 hours, I mean, the NHL was suspending playoffs in support of, of Black Lives Matter. Um, Major League Baseball uh, suited up and got out on the field uh, it, as if they were playing a game and went through the – and it, before the first pitch was uh, tossed, they walked off qu- quite dramatically in solidarity, giving each other the tip of the cap and showing, you know, solidarity. So it does seem to have rippled through sports. And uh, One of the interesting things for me is LeBron James has gradually – he could have been the Michael Jordan, right, who just stayed neutral on all of this to keep his sneaker deals. But he hasn't. He sort of evolved. And I think where he goes, goes the NBA um, and, and the young players like Jalen Brown who are leading this kind of stuff. So yes. for me, it was very exciting. It, it so was exciting t- that they were back mm-hmm. to play basketball <laughs> and then that they're leading this thing is even more exciting.
1: Right. Well, Tanisha, I I know one of the thoughts that you've had is that the NBA is probably, well, no, definitely uniquely poised to be a thought leader in the area of issues of race, right? I mean, it just has a slightly different constitution to it than other professional team sports.
0: They do. I mean, you know, when they came back and the way they came back kind of, you know, Holding on so firmly to Black Lives Matter and unabashedly saying, "You know, in some ways we're a black organization." Um, they are uh, perfectly poised to sort of take on this moment, and and I think in some ways, you know, Jim, you you brought up LeBron, and I feel like this is like LeBron giving a huge middle finger to Laura Ingraham and sort of saying like, oh, you told me uh, that I should just shut up and play basketball. Oh, I'm absolutely not doing that because the moment demands too much of me. I mean, we are reliving the 60s, right? Like we are seeing Black entertainers, Black stars move into space and say, you know, clearly our countrymen, you know, regular Joes, Uh, are not enough to get you to pay attention, you being um, white America. So I guess we're gonna have to shoulder the work. Um, And it has been exciting to see other leagues follow. Um, But they have definitely, the NBA has definitely set the table, you know, racial justice. I mean, you're right, we're not talking about the pandemic today. But uh, I wish every, the Department of Education was paying attention <laughs> to what's happening um, there and understanding the kind of uh, rigor and stringency you need um, to, to do all the things. To change the world, you need stringency, rigor, and bravery. And the NBA is sharing it uh, in all spheres. Yeah. and in I, all I, the bubbles. Yeah.
1: In <laughs> all the bubbles. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, and I also think that there's a way in which – You know, there's the fan bases of various sports. Uh, they try to assert various kinds of ownership uh, of those sports, right? So, I mean, one of the problems that the NFL has struggled with is that a lot of their fans are just not interested. I mean, beyond not interested, are are uh, openly hostile to the injection of uh, of racial politics uh, into any of uh, of the ceremonial activities of the NFL, and, and they'll fight that pretty hard. and And I think baseball has always also had this kind of, you know, pretty weight and frequently conservative fan base and also white and conservative players. There's a way in which the NBA, because its fan base is, I think, more ready. And, and the the rosters tend to be somewhere around 75% of black players. There are more black coaches in the NBA, I think by far, than in any other sport. There's a way in which the NBA is really ready to be a thought leader on this question. But, you know, Jim, there is also something just very radical about the idea, as you said at the beginning, this could have been a one-off. They, said, they could have said, we're not playing Thursday's games, but they really did seriously consider just not playing any games. And, and and that, you know, it does go back to something that Bill Russell said a long time ago during his career. He said, you know, it's become apparent that for some people, uh, you know, we're <coughs> acceptable as entertainers, but not acceptable as people. Uh, and, and I do think this is a group of athletes who are, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just I'm babbling here, but I mean, to Tanisha's point, this whole shut up and bounce the ball or shut up and sing or shut up. And I think that's what's over right now. The ability uh, of conservative pundits or anybody else to say to athletes or performers, shut up and do the one thing about you we actually care about. I think that's right. what's yeah. over.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's other, as we're talking, it's just occurring to me. There's another unique thing, uh, circumstance that probably plays into this I, I, more than, than we've thought about. And that is, remember, every NBA player is locked in at Disney World mm-hmm. because they're in the playoffs right now. So when they didn't play those games, they were able to go and have these big conferences of players. And they have a very strong players union, uh, probably one of the fairest in sports. So they, they didn't have to jump on a Zoom call. They could get together, and I'm sure they were all wearing masks because they, that's just how they're rolling, uh, and, and actually talk about this in person and have uh, lengthy, substantial conversations. I hadn't thought about that before, but you know they're all in one place, and that's never happened before. Right. So now, that, that might be an enabling factor.
0: Um, and, and the other thing I,
2: that's enabling is the structure of the league, that they support their players – that they value the the labor of their players um, more so, I think, than the other leagues do so far.
0: And I, I think I think yes, they're mostly you know it, they value the labor. <clears throat> but I think you said, some Colin, when you you sort of alluded to the fact that they that's a league where the leadership reflects the labor, and that is not wholly true in many entertainment. Um, Sectors, And it's definitely not true in other sports leagues. I mean, in the NFL, for example, you know, the vast majority of those players are black, but the stars are white. The owners are white. Um, The NBA has a different. Leadership looks different for the NBA. And so the conversations that I think are happening because of proximity are also happening because there is there is a a meshing of color lines. There is kind of a an all America at the table, um, at the NBA, which is not the case um, for other leagues. I mean, the MLB, right? I, I think I said in uh, our email exchanges leading up to this. You know, MLB is made up of a lot of immigrants, right? They get the job done. They mm-hmm. those you know those is uh, and so many you know you know these these black and brown people are living the quote-unquote American dream and so many of them you know were handed that starting in high school or college and so the kind of mental gymnastics and the mental plantation to use the, the language of the RNC kind of started at a young age and if if you are part of a league that benefits from that it's a harder conversation to have whether you're stuck together in Disneyland Disney World, or you know, trying to maintain a baseball season um, without a <laughs> a stadium to, to fill. But I think it's I think it's systemic, and and the system of the NBA is is structurally different than our other leagues.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about is whether or not I wish that they kept the walkout or the strike or whatever you're going to call it going a little bit longer. Because I do think one of the things that's happening and one of the things that they are responding to is, and and it's probably no coincidence that this came to a boil during the week of the Republican National Convention, although obviously the the Kenosha case is what what drove it more than anything, is that, you know, we, we increasingly inhabit these kind of hived off or siloed realities where certain kinds of information is either embraced or excluded, depending on which silo you happen to be in. Uh, So, for example, yesterday, President Trump was uh, asked three times whether he was in a reporter meeting, whether he had watched the Jacob Blake tape, and he just never answered because he doesn't really want that to be even in his reality. And I think in doing what they did, the players were sort of saying, you know, we're going to bring this issue to you. And the way we're going to do it is actually through our absence. You're going to tune in to watch the basketball playoffs and they're not going to be there until you face up to the fact that this isn't a, a this isn't a reality you can exclude. You can't really even construct, uh, society in, in a way that sort of takes out very valuable or important or disturbing pieces of information. But Jim, with that in mind, and I know you're a big Celtics fan, <laughs> but I sort of thought, you know, maybe a week or so would have really sent that message a little bit harder. Like, we are just not going to do the thing you want us to do until everybody sits down and admits or or at least acknowledges what's happening.
2: You know, I, I have to say, despite my love for the Celtics, I would support that 100%. I, and I love this part of what they're doing because they're using this this capital that they've acquired Uh, And spending it wisely, I think. Um, I have waited through COVID (laughs) because there's only so much Netflix. So there's only, you know, we're we're sort of, we're defined by the media we consume these days because there isn't a lot, especially if you're a working musician who is unable to go back to work until phase five. Um, I'm kind of done with Netflix. So I was really looking forward to the playoffs but I'm happy if the playoffs don't happen and this results in progress in this area because we're at this sort of flashpoint now. Um, you know, peripheral to this, we're seeing weird violence break out everywhere. And it, it, it's actually kind of cool to see a protest of, with absence, like you said, instead of showing up and screaming. They're saying we're not showing up at all. And I think that's a pretty powerful statement. If you or I don't show up, people in my case probably are happy. <laughs> but if they don't show up, that's a big deal.
0: Right. And, uh, well, well, it would be a big deal if you guys didn't show up and then inserted a black or brown person in your place, right? Yeah, that would be a, that would, that be would send a message. your yeah. version of this thing. yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, I always say there's a very, there are very few people in the world who are kind of indispensable. Uh, but, you know, LeBron James is probably one of them. <laughs> if LeBron James doesn't show up, there really is nobody who can take his place. I do want to say, just, uh, just to get it on the record here, that there's other things going on and uh, within the NBA and within the world of, of athletics, and, and actually not just the NBA but the WNBA as well. We, uh, we're remiss not to mention them. So there's a pro- project called More Than a Vote, which is uh, also led partly by LeBron James, and which is uh, all about addressing the question of voter suppression. Making sure that there are not organized efforts to exclude persons of color from being able to vote when and where they're supposed to be able to vote. Uh, I should uh, shout out Renee Montgomery, a former UConn uh, women's mm. star, who has uh, played a very, very big role in all this. Uh, and actually, she's not playing in the WNBA this year. I think it's mainly she's one of the players who's elected to, because of COVID not to do this. But also because I think she's from Georgia and I think she was to be really involved in this whole question. And, and Tanisha, you know that, that's to me that's a very encouraging thing because you know a strike can send a very powerful symbolic me- message, but this is also this is kind of getting opening the hood and getting in underneath it and really seeing if you can you can fix the engine and make it work properly. I'm sort of glad that athletes are doing both of those things.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I wish that we had a different uh, group of folks. Um, a collection of folks in our government, because I think, you know, the, the necessary next step is aligning with the, the powers that be to shift the needle. Um, I don't see a Kennedy Baldwin, you know, sports summit coming out of this. Um, but I think that organizing work that they're doing, is, uh, you know, in, in terms of getting out the vote is helpful. I think figuring out how to move us to the table. I think we all have to be honest about the the great potential that we will continue with Donald Trump as the head of our government for some time. Uh, what does that look like? Like, wh- how do you endure? How do you organize? How do you, you know, continue the dream of an America that is built for us all, truly all of us, for liberty and life and happiness? Um, and I and I am excited to see kind of organ. That LeBron and you're
1: uh, uh, getting a little uh, little Skype scramble here. Let me just curious
0: sort of- how that moves forward.
1: So um, yeah, we're going to, to take a break pretty soon here. Uh, anyway, although the one thing that I do want to say, Jim, is another way that I feel that I can see this changing is just to shift sports for a second and also to exhibit a certain amount of Packer pride. So on the Packers, Aaron Rodgers really is one of the thought leaders on the team about racial issues and about making sure racial issues get addressed and crafting statements and all this kind of stuff. Uh, one of his counterparts in football uh, of the New Orleans team, Drew Brees, kind of went the other way. This is like quite a few weeks ago now uh, and was questioning the value of kneeling during the national anthem and stuff like that and he really lost that battle he really had to back down and this is the N- the NFL which is much more dominated by kind of m- a-, a militaristic set of tie, a military set of ties and, and has a very much, much more conservative especially in some markets fan base so the idea that Drew Brees ultimately kind of had to walk away from his first position that tells me something too I, I really do feel like the the tide has shifted.
2: Yeah. I mean, we can be hopeful that it has. And I think you're right that there's something a a little more uh, militant about even the structure of football versus basketball. That's a whole separate discussion. I look at football, like it's like metal music and I look at basketball, like it's jazz. There's a whole, to me, a a whole different sort of set of visuals and capabilities or abilities required for both. And clearly the appeal of both is, uh, you know, some people watch both. I kind of dropped football a couple of years ago. It just got too weird for me. Um, And, you know, Tom Brady. So um, (laughs) I do think, yes, it's harder for a nuanced, full person to exist in the space of the NFL, like Aaron Rodgers, who's a complex individual with his own thoughts and stuff, than it is for someone like Drew Brees, under normal conditions, the the NFL would rally behind Drew Brees and all the semantics and symbolism that he would bring to the discussion. But I think you're right; it, it may have changed. I you know I just want to say when I was a freshman in high school, um, uh, Bill Russell came to our town and he he spoke at in this little church, and I was able to get an invitation. And it was one I was a I was already a basketball fan, but it was one of the most moving things I've ever experienced because he didn't talk about basketball at all. He talked about social change. And for those of us who were waiting to hear about how to dunk, it was an eye-opening, like it was a it, it was amazing to find out that he was a human being instead of this rebound basketball genius. He, he was this deeply heartfelt guy who had really thought out opinions and, and it had a great effect on me.
1: Yeah, the precursor to this week, by the way, was uh, in 61, Russell and his black teammates on the Celtics refused to play an exhibition game because two of them, Satch Sanders and Sam Jones, had not been served at a lunch counter. They were in Lexington, Kentucky to do an exhibition game against the Atlanta Hawks uh, and they, they didn't play. Now the game went on, the white players suited up uh, and two of the Hawks players also didn't play. And one of them, this is sort of Uh, Extra credit reading. Cleo Hill wound up being kind of the Colin Kaepernick of his era. He was a fabulously talented basketball guard. But because, in fact, he exhibited signs of racial consciousness on a team situated in Georgia, uh, he, he ultimately, you know, didn't have the career that he was supposed to have and was kind of blackballed. There's a reason we
2: don't say his name as much.
1: Right, exactly. But but uh, yeah. Yeah, Google Cleo Hill and you'll you'll, you'll hear yeah, some stories. Uh, all right. I think we should uh, grab a quick break here. We're going to talk about uh, bookshelves and also about a movie that we like quite a lot uh, after this.
0: We couldn't stand to see our children shot dead in the streets. But when I finally took a knee, them crackers took me out the lead.
1: So, we are back, uh, and we we're about to talk about uh, books you either have or haven't read and whether they're on your shelf or not with Jim Chapdelaine, Emmy winning musician, producer, composer, Gosh, oh. and recording engineer, and patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Tanisha Dugan, producing associate at Theatre Works. She joins us via Skype. Uh, so, uh, this week, a, a writer named Jess McHugh uh posted a tweet a tweet tweets are now sort of like a, a content thing that we can actually look at as content it was the top seven warning signs in a man's bookshelf just as a woman uh one a dog-eared copy of infinite just two too much hemingway three any amount of bukowski four ein rand all capitals good uh, number five is goethe uh, six is lolita is my favorite book and seven is fathers and sons is my favorite book so so tanisha how do we feel about book shaming, or, or at least this kind of uh, of book ranking?
0: I don't, I don't wholly mind it. Um, I do think it's funny that the lead up to this conversation was about tweet tweets as content, and we can thank D G J T for that atrocity. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not against it. I think it's cool, especially um, as as you alluded. Am I Skype? Scrambling again. A little bit, but not
1: bad. No, I'm not bad this time. You had a little problem in the previous segment. No, no, I was just going to say, I I just wanted to contextualize it too. I want you to talk a little bit more. But, um, 6,000 retweets. I forgot to say that when I was setting this thing up. 6,000 retweets, tweets, three or 4,000 comments appended to it. So, um, I mean, Tanisha, I think one of the things that makes tweets content, so to speak, is they're highly interactive. You know right away whether they have some significance to somebody. Um, so, I mean, I was kind of meh about this whole list, but I was clearly in the minority. So anyway, c- continue with your thought.
0: So, so you know, I, I, I love it because uh, it books do tell you a lot about the human beings that read them. I also, I think, have a longing and a mourning for my collection because, as I've moved, um, I've lost more and more books because they're heavy and cannot be easily transported. And as it as it goes, you sort of just keep the things that really matter to you, um, and not the whole collection. But I have loved in the Zoom life being able to like kind of be voyeuristic about the people uh, that I'm talking to because the book the bookshelves have been. The backdrops and the call, um, and it's been a a, a nice way to to keep time when I don't want to pay attention anymore.
1: Yeah. One thing I thought about these particular books was – I know Goodch is a problem for somebody. Uh, Turgenev was a problem for. First of all, it was a very sort of high class group of books in general that yes. we were dispensing with. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, you know, I mean, clearly, wait, wait. and yeah. Rand, come on. No, I Rand, I sort of get that. Although I don't know. I mean, growing up, I, I wouldn't keep a copy of Fountainhead, but Toss like in that, high school. Yeah. But it Toss tells you.
0: It tells you I understand the like the zeitgeist of the moment. I mean, that's right. you know right. Like that's the reason. You know, you kind of either want to see it, and and cringe or want sorry, Jim, what were you going to say? No, no, I, I like the fact
2: that you know it is sort of this intimate reveal of what's going on with a person. It's it's not only what they read, but it's what they aspire to read, or what they how they. <laughs> and now with all the Zoom stuff and all the people appearing on television with carefully crafted and curated. uh uh, bookshelves often a copy of their own book behind them um it it's become a complete construct you know um so i i was a, a sidebar to this i'm curious how this bookshelf this sort of in this case it looks like a very american male bookshelf what does that bookshelf look like in 1950, 1960, etc.? Through on uh, how much changes are are there any books that remain through? Well,
1: yeah, because I mean, it, I, well, it I mean
2: seems like they've tossed Hemingway out, right? And yeah, so, so, so the, I,
1: I'm not sure what point you're making. you're saying certain books fall out of fashion. I'm saying book, that, that but, this,
2: this bookshelf evolves through time, yeah, whatever the, yeah. the bookshelf that is of this tweet. It is not doesn't exist in ten years. It, it in the same way that it exists now, as sort of uh, an object of disdain.
1: Well, you know, I go back to the, you know, the Nick Hornby novel and the the movie High Fidelity, where the character says, "You are what you like," um, and, and and that's obviously his philosophy, and perhaps a philosophy that leads him astray from time to time. But I think, at some level, we partially all believe that, right? That the things that you mm-hmm. like, the mu- music, the movies, the books, the things that you like, the things that you care about culturally, are, if not the sum total of who you are because they're not, but they are really good signposts to, you know, for somebody approaching you at a fork on the, in the road, you know, they, they do sort of tell you which way your path, they will tell another person which way your path leads a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I get that. If you see a lot of Hemingway or, you know, in Ayn Rand, uncritically owned Ayn Rand collection, that, <laughs> that might worry you.
0: I guess, you know, I I kind of like at the intersection of what you both are saying, right, which is I think that like books particularly are as aspirational as they are things that are actually being read or have been read. And I also think it's a tell about where you were educated, right, because so much of those, you know, bookshelves when they're not being performative are the things that you purchased, you know, because you had to. Um, mm. Or the things that you purchased because you were part of a social group that said this is the conversations we're having. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of a both and situation. It is absolutely aspirational. It's totally like this is who I want you to think I am. <laughs> and then there's
2: also. And in that way, you know, the are things... they like a fashion sort of statement for some people? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying they are or not, but they they're part of the apparatus that you use to present yourself to the world. Right, and I think they're in also
1: but you never know just looking at the book which kind of aspiration it is for example i own a not particularly dog-eared copy of infinite jest because it's a book that i start periodically get 17 pages into and give up um, so it is my true aspiration to read infinite jest i'm not trying to impress anybody by owning it uh, i'm trying to get myself But you're to read trying
0: it. to impress yourself exactly yeah. and you can't quite right. get there
2: yeah right? that could be it
0: i, I have Only that 20 with pages
1: we have to shift uh, tracks here pretty quickly because uh, we have a pretty fascinating movie we want to discuss. Uh, it is called Atlantic or Atlantique, depending on uh, which uh, title issuance you prefer. Released in 2019, directed by a first-time Senegalese uh, director, uh, a, um, a, a protege to a certain degree. Uh, of the French filmmaker, Claire Denis. Uh, And, um, uh, uh, well, I want to just... Actually, I I should set up the plot a little tiny bit. Anyway, we meet a a young woman named Ada. Uh, She uh, is... um, being romanced by a young man named Suleiman. He's a laborer uh, on this kind of hideous-looking kind of misshapen Frank Gehry like tower uh, in the city of Dakar. Uh, he and his co-workers are not being paid. Um, and that turn, turns into kind of a fulcrum. It causes him and his co-workers to uh, get a boat and try to go to Spain and, and find more work. I don't want to do too many plot spoilers here. Um, and, and various consequences ensue. We should say that Ada is uh, about to marry up uh, a bit uh, to a more socionomically well-positioned young man uh, that she doesn't really particularly care for. Uh, and um, a, a strange occurrences happen right around the time of her wedding, which brings into the plot uh, a young, handsome Senegalese policeman named Issa, uh, who is supposed to investigate this. But he's got something weird going on with him, too. He has a mysterious ailment which makes him faint and fells him. So I think I better stop there and not say too much more, other than to say the supernatural uh, makes uh, a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, appearances right after that. So, first of all, Tanisha, did I do? Is that a good job? Should I? I should stop there, right? I shouldn't say much more.
0: No, I think I think that's a that's a really good good uh, synopsis, not synopsis, uh, or not not spoiler alert synopsis. What's interesting as you were talking and, and I kind of connecting it to the, our last conversation about books and fashion is that I kind of feel like this this movie felt a little bit to me like an aspirational like film. Like I would have this film on my bookshelf, the DVD, if that were in mm-hmm. fashion today. Ooh, um, yeah. Because I, as I said to you guys uh, earlier, I was like, I kind of felt like a stupid person trying to get through this movie. Um, and I am actually a huge fan of foreign films, but I was just struggling getting through this. And I don't know if it was like me being seduced by the the rhythm and the sounds of the the language. And so not wanting to, like being frustrated with myself that I couldn't actually just watch the screen and and understand the language. If it was me, sort of getting ahead of the movie in some ways, and not wanting to believe that I was ahead of the movie, Um, but it is really beautiful. The script is beautiful. Um, It it kind of makes sense that she's she's been working under uh, a wonderful mentor because you kind of see a a sophistication in this quote unquote debut film um, that you know, I think is, is hard earned by many um, young filmmakers. Um, and there's a restraint also, I think, which you don't find in first time um, filmmakers in terms of like her visual storytelling. Um, it's, it's a really, it's beautiful. And for those of you much smarter than me, and I sing that with my tongue fully in my cheek, uh, who can sort of enjoy it the first round, I think there's, there's something to get in, in it. Well, Jim, um, and as you said, you know, see yeah. it more than once.
1: Yeah. Jim and I are both uh, fluent in French, Wolof, and Arabic, which are the, I think the three languages <laughs> spoken in the movie. So we didn't really have to look at the subtitles the way you did. But, um, totally. Uh yeah, Jim, I, I mean, I, I want to hear you just say whatever you want to say about it. But one thing that I'm kind of hoping, I, I thought Tanisha's use of the word restraint is perfect. You know, there's a way in which this film could be so much more florid and flamboyant and and calling attention to itself. And it does so much more with silences a lot of the time than a lot of directors could do with music, speech and noise. Uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, just tell me in general how you felt about it.
2: Well, first of all, I'll answer in English um, so that we can all hear it. Oh, I'll um, translate it to Wolof I, as you go. All right. So I, it's funny because I, I usually don't make a lot of notes, but in my notes uh, I said Ada's is quiet, strength, and resolve. Uh, at one point the pacing is, is perfect. It's not lazy, but it's not rushed. It's patient. Um, it's a really patient movie, but it didn't feel to me like it required my patience to watch it it wasn't like oh man hurry up because the cinematography is so beautiful and the imagery is so beautiful and the music is spectacular but everything I'm, i'm the words are too big that i'm choosing to use right now because it's very under everything is understated um and just slowly delivered like somebody just handing you little things um even the actors are very understated. They're not, they're not overacting. They're just delivering their lines in this sort of perfect way. Um, I, I think uh, for me, normally, in fact, two days before uh, I tried to watch the original girl with the, I don't know, red dragon tattoo. I always forget the title, but, it, and, and I could not get with it because it was a little late and the subtitles were just killing me. I think it might've been on Amazon, which has like microscopic subtitles to begin with, but it just wasn't going to work for me at that time. These subtitles seem to sort of dissolve for me. And so I, it didn't, that's, that's not a judgment of Tanisha at all because a time of day and state of mind have a lot to do with how you consume a movie like this. Um,
1: right. Some of it is the so gummies you bought in Northampton,
2: I think. Right, um, right, and I'm not taking care of a young child either.
1: Right, there. There's well, <laughs> you I know, think to, you're right. Yeah, like go ahead. The
0: best foreign films. It in the best foreign films, it does dissolve, and it just kind of like you're just kind of washed away by it. And I think that, like, I, I I feel like there may be some like epigenetics going on with me about it, and that's part of it. Is that like I think I wanted to be in it even more um, than I could be, and I think that was like the as a viewer, as a watcher, that was my resistance was that I couldn't be like in it in the way that I you know would if it were an American film. I'm sorry Colin what were you going to say? No
1: I was going to bring that up with you actually Uh, let me just pursue that a little bit more with you I mean I think First of all, there's probably less spoken word in this movie than there are in a lot of movies. But once again, mm-hmm. it is a movie that relies a lot of, on silences. Uh, this director, Mati Jupp, uh, this is a very mature first movie uh, that, that she is making. And and yeah, I'm very much in the fashion of a director like, uh, like Claire Denis. There are these mm-hmm. long stationary camera shots. There's one where we see Ada, the protagonist, uh, just walking down a street in you know toward the camera it's got to go on for over a minute and all that's happening is she's walking down this road but you suddenly notice that it's a despite the fact that Dakar is a pretty big city this is kind of a dirt road and there are these kind of ox carts and donkey carts and horse carts that are moving in the other direction past her and there's a way in which I think you know that this director Mati Jop is saying I want you to really look at this the really yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm very sloppy about that kind of thing. I can just sort of visually tune something out pretty easily. And, and, you know, maybe that's a little bit what you're reacting against Tunisia, is you wanted, you wanted to just kind of melt into all of those shots of the Atlantic ocean or, you know, yeah. or the city itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly it. And I think when I had to, because the stretches, are, you know, quote, unquote, long um, without a lot of text that, you know, when it when the text came in, I had to pull myself out in order to follow what was being said. Uh, and because the script is is sparse in that way, you kind of do need to understand what they're saying. I think I think you, you stated it beautifully like that, that is exactly it. And that the experience of, of the movie is is environmental. Um, it is about this juxtaposition between a very phallic, <laughs> you know, new building. Um, it, it literally looks like a, a vibrator stuck in the middle of this of this of this place. <laughs> it does. You're like, what? Okay. Um, but I think there's something about about masculinity and femininity that she's playing with in this in this movie. You can see it in the color story of the ocean, like. And I wanted to be in it. Yeah, you said it. Exactly, exactly, exactly right.
1: Well, Jim, there is a way in which, I mean, first of all, within the movie, much of the supernatural activity of the movie comes to people in sleep and in dreams Mm -hmm. uh, in the manner of an incubus or a succubus uh, in, in mythology. And there's a way in which I think the director is having us dream, too. I mean, maybe one of the reasons that Tanisha doesn't want to be woken up by subtitles is that we are kind of lost in this V- this visual dream that nonetheless has a very discernible plot, unlike most of our dreams.
2: It, it, I, yeah, I, I would say um, there's nothing about this movie that smashes you. Um, there's no big ta There's no, I mean, the way she plays with sort of the, it, I saw one description of it where it said it's a horror movie. Um, and while there are elements of supernatural, it's, I think a real horror movie fan would be just so <laughs> horrible. they would be horrified about how unhorrible it is. Um it, this even the the special effects are just so understated but so effective. Um it it's um it, it reminded me like of a there's the a spy movie uh Tinker Tailor yeah. um, Soldier where only one person was shot in the whole 3 hour movie. You know what that's a spy movie, and we expect wham-bam explosions and athletics. And and the same thing here. It's, everything is very low-key and believable. And, and in a way, that makes it more eerie. And, and so when something comes to you at night, and it's real, and it's really possible, that's actually a little more frightening.
1: Uh, I should say
0: that... It the- feels the- very yeah. much like... I was going to say it just feels very much like you know um, Octavia Butler. It feels very much like Black female sci-fi writing and K. Jemison. I think there's like if I if I think of, of this film and I think of what Jordan Peele does, I think there's something in the way that Black female art artists sort of use sci-fi mm-hmm. um and and i and i'm actually i'm just yes anding uh what you're saying jim i think that, that that there is a softness and there is a uh, subtlety to the usage of of sci-fi and it really is used as a tool to bring us into a story tool to bring us into a future idea of a something um which i, I just kind of love those those threads of connection all
1: right you know there's probably, another okay go tag. ahead what, yeah. To, yeah, go ahead and then we'll side. have to finish up. But go ahead, Jim.
0: I, I'm just going to ping pong
2: really quick off that. And, and this is not a wholly original idea. And I, I don't think I'm giving away too much plot, but the, the story starts with the workers, the male workers being deprived of their pay and stuff. And, and we think we've sort of met our cast and we kind of understand our story. And then we meet Suleiman, the, the male workers, uh, girlfriend, Ada. And, and, one thing that I read about this is that normally in a story like this, when an adventure begins, the people going on the adventure take the audience with them, and we're not thinking about the people left behind. In this story, it's completely about the people left behind, or it's, it's certainly focused on what happens to the people left behind, and in this case, to these women.
1: All right so uh, our verdict is you should watch this that was also the verdict of President Obama when he put out his list of the best movies of 2019 uh, trust him if you don't trust us uh, uh, it's called Atlantics you can find it on Netflix uh, and um, we do recommend it uh, but you know yeah pick a pick a time when you're both quiet and alert to watch it that's what my, I would recommend all right let's take a break we're going to come back we will recommend things We are back. I must thank Kat Pastor, who uh, is there in the booth, engineering and uh, making everything sound great, making it possible for the rest of us to work remotely, and once in a while, uh, saving us. Uh, from who knows what? Uh, you'll never know. <laughs> and, uh, also, to Jonathan McPants, he's the producer of this episode, always the producer of The Nose. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday with the scramble. We almost always deal somehow or other with the medical science of COVID. I'm pretty sure we're going to do that again. Uh, it is time to make some endorsements. Uh, so, uh, Jim Chapdelaine, why don't you go first? What do you want to endorse today?
2: Uh, I have a couple of quick things. Um, I'm listening in this house we're listening to Scene on Radio a podcast that uh, I'm loving um, it's about American history and it's a deep dive into I, I'm, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say it. intersectionality but it is it it, it is the, the things we didn't learn in history are are very much explored in this series there's four seasons uh, it, it's really brilliant and the Guests are fascinating and they really know their stuff. So there's that scene and scene is spelled S C E N E.
1: And where do we find this?
2: Uh, it's a podcast. It's it a podcast. out of okay. Duke. Okay. And, uh, and it's, it's just really, it's, I'm obsessed with it right now. Um, uh, we took a day trip and it's my second time there. I, 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 I would recommend it. It's a quick ride to Lincoln mass where you can go to the DeCordova sculpture park museum and uh, julian de cordova was uh to make an immigrant who became a titan of industry and left his estate which was turned on into this outdoor sculpture park so it's a really safe place to go people wear masks you can be outside you can picnic um it's in lincoln mass it was like i think 15 bucks for for a whole car to get in uh the whole car had two people in it um And lastly, the new Haim album. Haim is a group made up of three sisters in LA. It's a very LA record, but I I feel like um, these women have hit their stride with this record. I really like it, and I didn't, it just sort of snuck up on me and bashed me, and now I can't take
0: it off.
1: All right, Uh, what have you got for us, Tanisha Dugan?
0: I'm gonna uh, endorse some uh, artists and collaborators, who are making art in this pandemic and also, um, fighting for a better, uh, us. Um, I'm going to start with Biana Maya. She is a singer, uh, songwriter. She's got a new song called you got it. That's available everywhere. Um, I'm going to shout out my, my dear friend, Chad Brown Springer, um, who's working with me on a project and uh, is always in the, in the streets and making music about this moment. Um, Alonzo Beckett of N.E. Video, he's a filmmaker and video editor uh, who has been making projects uh, with folks about this moment, but also about joy uh, and freedom and excitement and the good things of li- in life um, through this all. Uh, and Alani Alongway. Uh, who is in the midst of writing a musical called At the River I Stand uh, that is about the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968. And and the echoes of that, the shadows of that in the workers' strike of the NBA has become more profound and prominent to me um, through this week. Um, just really proud of those artists, mostly local, um, or have touched Hartford in some way, who are, are really shifting Um, The culture and the moment Um, just proud to be in their midst.
1: All right. Uh, I apropos of our beginning uh, conversation uh, I wanted to um endorse or recommend the basketball writing, well there's only one one example I think maybe so far, uh, of Vincent Cunningham of The New Yorker. He's a rising young star at The New Yorker. But uh, his piece, which is up there on the site right now, uh, contrasting uh, Luka Doncic uh, with James Harden, uh, is really, really terrific. Although the the, the person that he writes about the most beautifully uh, is uh, Kawhi Leonard in that piece. And it's uh, you know, the New Yorker is always like oh, – they always have like one really great sports writer, whether it's Roger Angel or – I mean, the boxing writing of A.J. Liebling in the past was just so amazing. Vincent Cunningham, I think, might be the new uh, person to do that, and he really uh, – he writes about New Yorker writing about sports is always kind of like kind of not so much ab- about sports. Uh, and it's more just about the sheer descriptive powers uh, of a really, really good writer. So, yeah. So check out that. I mean, if you have any relationship at all to what I was just talking about, like if you even know who those people are, you should definitely do this um, for fun. And I'm very late to this party. Uh, but uh, as Broadway stars chafe at the long absence, they're looking for things to do. And so Christine Baranski, Meryl Streep and Audra McDonald. All right, already you've won, right? I mean, with that lineup. Uh, they did a very tipsy version uh, of The Ladies Who Lunch by Stephen Sondheim from the musical company, uh, which um, in which they, they, they are actually drinking quite a bit, which is really what the song uh, is about. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a tribute to uh, Sondheim, I think, uh, that was made on his birthday. But just Google their names together. You'll probably get the video right away. I mean... Audra McDonald has to sing last because nobody can sing like Audra McDonald. And we'll watch it all the way to the end because Audra McDonald does something really funny at the end. Um, so one last thing, because the end sometimes gives me a chance to remember to say something that I didn't say. Um, so Drew Brees, for all of his sins, nonetheless has, um, been practicing with the name. Uh, of Jacob Blake taped uh, on a piece of tape across his helmet, as have many others of the New Orleans Saints. So maybe he learned something. Uh, he's actually uh, showing some solidarity right now. And NFL teams can't sit out their games because they're not playing any games right now. They have canceled practices. They have put uh, Blake's name on their helmets. All right. Thanks for listening. We will be back on Monday.
2: Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm on the